Happy Mother's Day, Trinity. I'm Ronnie. It's really good to be with you. We're going to turn our attention now to God's Word. Uh, Last Sunday, we began a new sermon series called The Forgotten Torah. And uh, the word Torah in Hebrew, it just, uh, it means law or teaching. And it often references the first five books in the Old Testament written by Moses. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now Christians don't normally call it the Torah. We call it the Pentateuch, right? Penta designating five. You get it. Do the math there. Uh, The reason we have called this sermon series the Forgotten Torah uh, is because we are going to be teaching on the main parts of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Because quite frankly, most Christians ignore that section of their Bibles. Uh, We read a little bit about Genesis and Exodus, but once we get to Leviticus, we quit because it's like so confusing and mysterious And it feels like we have like no parallel to it in our modern culture. Leviticus is a book of rules and rituals. And our culture has a severe allergy with those two words. Like seriously, trying to tell people that they need rituals and rules, uh, they'll pull out an EpiPen and like stick it in their backside so that their throat doesn't like clog up. I mean, it's awful. So I have... An impossible task. But listen, I'm here to tell you that Leviticus paints a picture that is so beautiful and necessary that our hearts cannot experience peace without it. Your brain can't fully comprehend Jesus without it. So let me, let me try to set up Leviticus this morning. As Jeff reminded us last week, the whole story of the Bible uh, begins in the Garden of Eden. In the garden represented the place where heaven and earth share the same space, right? Heaven is not just a location in the clouds out there where people are playing harps, all right? It is the place where God's immediate presence dwells. So in the garden, God and man dwell together. And it was great, and it was great. Then, of course, man rebelled against God, and man was exiled from God's presence, When God exiled man from his presence, that was an act of grace. It was an act of grace. How come? Listen, man was built to have a relationship with God, but God is perfectly holy. And so the holy presence of God, it's good, but it's dangerous. God's holiness is like the sun, right? God's holy presence is awesome, but if you're too close to it, it will burn you up. It will destroy you. It is good, but it's dangerous for unholy people like us. But remember, we were built for God's presence. We need it. We need heaven and earth to reunite. We need his presence. But how is this possible? Well, God tells Israel to build the tent of meeting. That's just the tabernacle. The tabernacle is God's royal palace where he dwells. This is where heaven and earth are coming together. The king of the universe has moved into the neighborhood. All right? This was great. And we really want to visit the king at his house. But if we run in, we will die. So last week in the introduction sermon, we learned that when the tabernacle was constructed, God's presence, his his presence filled it. And Israel's most important person 
Moses could not even go in. And if Moses can't get in, ain't nobody getting in, right? So in Leviticus 1, chapter 1, the first verse in Leviticus, it picks up right after our text last week, right after Exodus, and it says that the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So from the, from the, uh, from the tabernacle. So notice it says from, right? So very interestingly, in the very next book in Numbers, which we're going to be studying in a couple weeks, in Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, it says, it says this, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. Not from the tent, but in the tent of meeting. So did you notice the difference? Moses got in, <laughs> like he made it. So whatever God said to do in Leviticus totally worked. And this is huge. It worked. So what's the trick? How can we get into the presence of God? So Leviticus is going to respond to that with three solutions. Rituals, a priesthood, and purity laws. This morning, I'm going to speak about the rituals. So nobody take out your EpiPens. We're going to be fine, all right? In chapters 1 through 7 in the book of Leviticus, there are five different kinds of rituals, five different kinds of offerings. You have the burnt offering, the grain offering. You have the fellowship offering, sometimes called the peace offering. You have the sin and then the guilt offering. So this morning, I'm just say one of them. It's the fellowship or the peace offering. Now, before we get into this text, let me just say one more thing uh, before we get there. Many of us, when we think about God's rituals or God's law, it feels burdensome. Like, ugh, all these rules are suffocating me. Let me suggest to you that when an Israelite heard these rules, it gave them hope and joy. Let me explain. In the ancient world, the pagans had gods, and they made sacrifices too— But their gods were capricious. Sometimes the gods brought rain and fertility. Sometimes they didn't. And pagans never knew where they stood with their gods. They never knew if their sacrifices were enough. And this kind of uncertainty makes people go crazy. It's like a child whose mother suffers with a personality disorder or a father who has, who's manic depressive, right? These kinds of relationships wound their children. It complicates things. A child is constantly managing the, the wild mood swings of their parents, and they have no idea what they said, if what they said set them off, right? Is it good things? Is it bad things? I mean, who knows? That's how the pagans saw their gods, And dare I say it, dare I say it, some of you see and imagine God that way too. If something bad happens in your life, we think, God, why did you do this? Or what did I do wrong, right? We're always attaching meaning to every good or bad event in our life, and we're attaching that to the whims of God. But this will make you crazy. A good Israelite always knew how God felt about them. Because of God's law, you can know with certainty if your life is pleasing to God, even in fluctuating circumstances. And so this section in Leviticus is teaching Israel how to have a relationship with a holy God. It's teaching people how to live as his people. 
And, and while in the New Testament, explicitly in the book of Hebrews, the Levitical law we're studying no longer applies to us, nevertheless, we are going to discover principles for modern people that give us the exact same benefits. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be able to rest in my relationship with Jesus. A capricious vision of God is exhausting. God gives us security and stability. So this morning, as we study the fellowship offering, this peace offering in in, in Leviticus 3, we're going to discover kind of three principles that help us see the beauty and joy of God's rituals and laws. All right? So with that long introduction, would you please stand with me and let's give our attention to 17 verses in the very word of God. This is Leviticus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering, the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove. With the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If this offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb from his offering, he shall offer it before the Lord. Lay his hand on the head of his offering, kill it in front of the tent of meeting, and Aaron's sons shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole Fat tail cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. If his offering is a goat, he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on its head, kill it in front of the tent of meeting, and the sons of Aaron shall throw it its blood against the sides of the altar. He shall offer, it, offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, that fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. The grass withers, flower fades, but the word of God, and this indeed is the word of God, shall endure forever. May bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. That's a mouthful. So uh, I come from an immigrant Mexican family that settled in Texas, and uh, do you know what that means? Let me, intru- let me interpret that for you. It means that we were culturally Catholic, We weren't great Catholics, but we went to church when it was convenient. Uh, Growing up in the Catholic uh, uh, church meant that um, all the rituals were extremely familiar and predictable 
and even sweet to me. But for all the rituals, I never knew the gospel or loved Christ. But by God's grace, when I was in high school, I heard the gospel, I believed, and it set my heart on fire. I became like a weirdo in my home, but I developed this insatiable hunger to read the Bible and to learn. My college years were filled with reading books on theology and Christian living. My heart was engaged in ways like never before. But in college, I joined a church that basically looked at the Catholic church and then just did like the exact opposite. Lamentably, this church defined itself against the Catholic church instead of defining itself by what the Bible teaches. In this church, uh, my college church, emotional and spontaneous experiences with God were what were considered a real and authentic. If you weren't getting goosebumps, then the spirit wasn't working in your life. And I bought into this vision of spirituality, but then I noticed something. I lost my fire. I got lazy. I wondered if church was worth going to if I didn't like the music. Sometimes I skipped church because I uh, justified it by saying that my heart wasn't engaged. And if it wasn't, then I shouldn't go because I don't want to be hypocritical, right? I wanted to be authentic and spontaneous. An internal emotional experience is what constituted the most important part of my spiritual life. Can I suggest to you this morning that the Bible confronts both of the extremes that are present in my own story? And it's not because neither rituals nor spontaneity is important. Rather, it's because both are. Both. See, the first principle is that the offerings of God are both ritualistic and spontaneous. And let me, let me explain this for you. So the first five sacrifices that we see in the, in the first seven chapters of Leviticus, they are not mandated. They are not mandated offerings connected to festivals. These are sacrifices that a person can give whenever he desires. There may be an instance in, a, in, in life in which a person spontaneously feels compelled to practice the ritual. So for instance, imagine an Israelite Uh, who privately broke one of the Ten Commandments. He's feeling overwhelmed by his guilt. He doesn't want to disappoint God. So first, he offers a burnt offering. And then in celebration that it works and that there's reconciliation with God, he spontaneously makes a fellowship offering, a peace offering. This offering allows his deep emotions to be expressed in real ways with God. It's not just this internal, invisible emotion, right? It's expressed meaningfully. But here's the thing. The spontaneity is important. The heart must be engaged in worship. But that does not mean that you can simply come to God however you want, right? Y'all remember what happens in that story in Exodus 32 with the golden calf? When Moses was on Mount Sinai with God, his brother Aaron fashioned a a, a golden statue, a statue of gold of a baby cow. So he basically said, hey guys, here's my idea of what God is. What's important is that our hearts are sincere. That's what's important here. So let's take off our clothes and have like this deep experience. Yes, it was spontaneous. Uh, They even made sacrifices But God became really, really 
angry. God always tells us how to come to him. And so in our text, in this fellowship offering, it is spontaneous, but it is also ritualistic. So in verses 1 through 4, God tells people how to sacrifice a cow. He tells us exactly what to do with the organs and who gets what. Verses 5 through 11, he repeats in in very specific detail uh, the same instructions. This time he does it with a sheep. And then in verses 12 to 16, he does it again. Make sure that you're not missing the point here, right? But this time he does it with a goat. So if you're rich, you used a cow. If you're poor, you used a goat. But everyone knew how they come to God. Now listen, this principle still governs our worship today. See, we want to embrace the best parts of meaningful spontaneity, but at the same time, the ritualistic aspects govern how God wants us to approach him. Now, if you uh, read theology or whatever, this is sometimes called the regulative principle. That is to say that the Bible regulates how we worship him. We don't decide. God tells us. God decides. So, for instance, I like dramas. I like dramas. Uh, There is a place for, like, Christian plays. But we don't do Christian dramas here in corporate worship. Why? Because this isn't a talent show. That's why. This isn't a talent show. We have communion with bread and wine, not pizza and Coke. Why? Because the Bible regulates our worship. God tells us how to come to him. And this is really good news. Yes, it is ritualistic, but that doesn't mean that our hearts are not engaged, right? These rituals, these repetitions, like systematically confessing our sin that we do every Sunday, they give expression to inward emotions. Y'all see how that works? They, they, They incarnate our emotions in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Now, there's more to say, but I gotta keep going so that this sermon doesn't last an hour. Here we go. So the first principle brings together the aspects of ritual and spontaneity in our worship. In our second, the second principle, we have a vision of God who is both king and the beloved. That is to say, it's intimate. In 1961, Life magazine published a picture, which has now become iconic, of President John F. Kennedy sitting in the Oval Office while his baby son, John Jr., is playing underneath his desk. This picture grabbed the imagination of an entire country, an entire nation. So as the story goes, JFK is having an important meeting with his cabinet members, and all of a sudden, someone, like, beats down the door and, like, runs in. Now, at first, like, everyone is super indignant because nobody enters the president's private meetings without an invitation. And certainly, no one would do it so carelessly. But how does the president of the most powerful country in the world react? With joy. Right? With joy. JFK is the president of the United States, but he was also a father. He held ultimate political power in the free world, but playing at his feet was a little boy who called him daddy. I don't think your kids would have been allowed to do that, nor mine, but his kids were. Why? Because he wasn't just the president. He was his father. Now, this union between king or sovereign and beloved 
is present in our description of the, in these sacrifices, even in Leviticus 3. And let me show you how this works. So I mentioned earlier that the tabernacle is analogous to a royal palace. It's a palace. It's a royal palace where the creator and king of the universe took up residence. So the tabernacle, for instance, you'll learn about it. It's ornate. It's filled with gold unlike any other structure. It's fit for a king. It even has a throne room, which is called the Holy of Holies. And just as kings had servants in their palaces who wore special uniforms, so does the Lord with his priests. That's what the priests are. So beginning in Exodus, uh, the language and the literary form takes on the shape of this thing called a suzerain treaty. Okay, theology alert. Here we go. A suzerain treaty is a treaty or a covenant between unequal parts, unequal parts. So a king promises protection and benefits, and the subjects promise loyalty and certain responsibilities. So the contract between the two takes on a legal language, right? It's like the fine print of how things are going to go down. That's what you're finding in the book of Leviticus. And so you can notice in your text with me the if-then sequences. In verse 1, if, verse 5, then. And it repeats it. Six, six if, nine, then. Verse 12, if, verse 14, then. It's always if-then. You hear that? What is this legalese? What is this legal language for? It's telling us how to bring tribute to a king, right? You you don't come to the king empty-handed. You come offering gifts, tributes. But here's the amazing part about this whole fellowship offering, the one which we're studying today. God makes a way for there to be relationship between the king and the subjects and for that relationship to be intimate, You'll see this in verse 2, and then, of course, I'll repeat it in 8 and 13. There's this ritual that's repeated. The worshiper comes to the altar with this perfectly unblemished, healthy animal. He places his hands on the head of the animal. This is to symbolize that the sin of the worshiper is conferred onto the animal in his place, and then the animal's throat is slit. And then the priest takes the blood And he he sprinkles it on the altar. The Lord accepts and communes with those who come into his presence through the death of an atoning sacrifice. But what happens next is what's so amazing. The worshiper, the priest who's, who's helping out, and the king, they share a meal together. In that context, sharing a meal, in that ancient context, sharing a meal with a person is the most intimate thing you can do. Listen, subjects don't have casual dinners with their kings. Israelites do. Israelites eat with their king. The animal then is cut up into three ways. So the fat of the animal is the Lord's portion. Now, listen, when you hear that word fat, don't just think of fatty tissue. That that word fat should be interpreted as the finest portion. The fat is the finest portion. The king gets the filet mignon. And then the priest gets a portion too. And of course, the worshiper, the one who brought it, he himself eats a portion of his own sacrifice. He is bringing an offering, but he's benefiting from his own animal. The fellowship offering is a banquet where the king 
is, en- is enjoyed in this highly relational, beloved way, intimate way. Listen, that vision of God is still present in our worship today. So, for instance, often when we pray, we begin uh, by praying, saying, Father God, have y'all heard us? Have y'all heard people pray like that? Father God, we come to you. Have you heard that? It's a little bit clumsy to say it like that, but that is our best way of we're trying to remember that, that the creator God of the universe communes with us as his children. I mean, he's God, but he's also our father. He invites us into his home and he dines with us. He is the beloved. Listen, no religion, no religion in the world relates to God on such intimate terms. This was like mind-bending in the Old Testament. And of course, it's still true today. Also worth noting is that the sacrifice is not just for God's benefit. The two other parties benefited well, right? So in the first place, the palace servants, the priests, they benefit. Now, it's funny to say it like that, but the Levitical priests, they didn't get a paycheck, and they don't own their own land. They don't own land that they can farm. They needed the sacrificial system to eat, to survive. This practice is, of course, still present in our churches. So your pastors uh, are paid from a portion of your offering to the Lord. So, for instance, Jeff and I, we're not peddling vitamins and Amway on the side, right? We're benefiting, all right? Secondly, the worshiper himself benefits. So he eats a portion of his own sacrifice. Again, this is, this is still present today. So you benefit spiritually from your own sacrifice. That is, it's good for you to make sacrifices to the Lord. So how so? Well, we're all enjoying this building we're enjoying uh, the air conditioning, the child care, the coffee, the maintenance of the church community all comes from the offerings. Because of the offerings, our church community is, is a, hospitable, a hospitable place to worship the Lord. It's hospitable. We benefit from our own sacrifice. To include Jeff and I, we participate too. See, not all of the sacrifice is burnt up with the fellowship offering. This isn't just Old Testament stuff. Listen to how the Apostle Paul references this in the New Testament. This is in Philippians 4.18. He says says to them, he says, Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Now listen, a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to the Lord, right? Now see how their participation is considered that sacrifice using the exact same Levitical language. It's, ana- it's analogous language even in the New Testament. I'll see that. All right, I know I'm moving super fast, but there is one last principle here. So far, we examined how the offering is both ritualistic and spontaneous, and then we examined how the king is also the beloved. Lastly, we see how the offerer and the offering are brought together. So with each of these five offerings that we see in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, the person brings something of worth. In the case of the fellowship offering, the passage that we're studying this morning, the person brings an animal. Uh, but of course, also with the grain offering, which we, we, you could read about in chapter 2, he's sacrificing his finest flour and oil and spices and burning it up on the altar. But in each case... 
the worshiper comes to the Lord and he recognizes that it costs him something to worship, right? There is no faith without a personal cost. There's no cheap grace, you see. And here is the experience when a person brings his offering to the Lord. He is implicitly declaring this. He's saying, Lord, everything that I have is because of you. Everything I belong, I have belongs to you. And I am going to give back to you a portion of what I have received by your grace. Now, here's what I want you to hear. This is what comes next. In that moment, when the worshiper is doing that, he's not only saying that what I have belongs to you, what he really is saying, Lord, I belong to you. You don't only own my stuff. Lord, you own me. I belong to you. You know what that means? That when we worship properly, what we're saying is that both the offering and the offerer belong to the Lord. We are his. True worship helps us to understand ourselves Now, listen, this is crystal clear. This isn't just Old Testament stuff. This is crystal clear in the New Testament. In the New Testament, this principle came through, and it's no more more clear than in the life of Jesus himself. When John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, sees um, Jesus for the first time, what does he say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus in himself is both the offerer and the offering. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, we studied this a few weeks ago. The Apostle Paul, he's exhorting the people to walk in love. And he says, walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The offerer and the offering are united in true worship. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Sermon on Leviticus. Congratulations. This is a doozy. Let me conclude with one final thought about this text. You and I were built for God's presence, right? But because of our sin, God's good presence became dangerous. It became dangerous to us. But God made a way for us to be in his presence. And these rituals and practices give form to principles that are surprisingly refreshing for modern, modern people. See, our worship is both ritualistic and spontaneous. God is both king and the beloved, and we, the offerer, become part of the offering. And with these surprising ironies that we see in Leviticus, and specifically in the fellowship offering, we can see how God, your God, is not capricious. He's not. We can have certainty with God. In fact, our souls can find the rest that they're looking for, because we know where we stand with God. When an Israelite wanted to make a fellowship offering to the Lord, he dared not show up empty-handed. He knew exactly what to bring and how to offer it. The finest part of the animal and its blood were placed on the altar. And just look right very quickly with me the last two verses of our text. Starting in verse 16, it says, And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever through your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat 
neither fat nor blood that you eat, neither fat, the finest portion, nor blood. Now think about that. Now think about Jesus, if you hear that. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, it was the Passover. Do y'all remember this? He took uh, the bread and the wine, and he called it something, right? He was, remember, he was, he was enjoying food with his brothers, right? Where, and where did that food come from? So theologians will tell you that Jesus was enjoying the meal from their fellowship offering. The Passover has a, a type of fellowship offering. The fellowship offering was the context of that final dinner, which means then what? That the fat, the finest portion, and the blood was already burned on the altar. Because that alone, that alone is for God. Y'all see. So at this meal, Jesus does something. He took the bread, and he took the wine, and he called it something. He said, this bread is now the new fat. It is the finest portion. It is my body, right? And then he took the cup and he called it something. He says, this wine, this is my blood. Do you see what he's saying here? Jesus is saying, I am the fat. I am the finest portion. It is my blood that must be offered to the Lord. I am the once and for all finest sacrifice. Given to the Lord. It's his sacrifice is how fellowship and peace is achieved with the holy God. In Christ, the presence of God is no longer dangerous. It's hospitable even. But now, when you come to God, you don't dare bring anything in your hands. You don't bring your resume Now we come empty-handed, not with works, but with our hands filled, clinging, clinging to Jesus and to him alone, our once and forever perfect sacrifice. That is why Leviticus 3 is so relevant even today. Amen. Amen.